Welcome to the Akashic Reading Podcast, presented by AkashicReading.com, the place where you can learn to access your soul's wisdom, or at least stop digging the hole any deeper. I'm your host, Terry Uctana, and today we'll be taking a deep dive into spirit guides, how many we have, what roles they play, and how to work with them proactively. Embodiment is not the soul's natural state. As souls, we live the majority of our existence free from encasement, communicating through thought and feeling, fully interconnecting with whatever it is we're interested in, while still retaining our own identity. Becoming embodied is like putting on a spacesuit. Our mobility and senses are severely limited, our field of vision is restricted, and we rely as much on the information which is piped in as what we can glean through the suit. Luckily, we have a crack team of experts who have agreed to support us during this physical journey. They act as our eyes and ears, helping us understand and reach for the input which will get the job done. They try to keep us on track to meet our goals, monitor to make sure everything is working within specified parameters, and watch out for anomalies as well as the unexpected. They can't be embodied with us, but as much as they can, they work to assure the trip is successful and we make it home in one piece. Each embodied soul has spirit guides. The average is three to seven, depending on the needs of the soul and the life they have planned. Most people never notice them because, like good backstage hands, Guides work behind the scenes and try to keep themselves out of the way so the focus can be on the actors and the stage. These spirit guides are responsible for supporting various aspects of the embodied soul's experience. There are actually five common roles our spirit guides undertake. One is physicality. Making sure the physical body works within the specified parameters. This doesn't necessarily mean staying healthy. The body is required to signal when we're out of balance, making choices counter to our best interests, or straying from our soul path. It's also meant to support emotional processing, participate in deep healing of negativity, and encourage soul growth, all of which can cause what appear to be health crises. Our physical guide monitors this while trying to help us understand what's happening and what it all means. As a side note, for those who needed one, this is the guide who shows up in childhood as our invisible friend or the advisor when our psychic gifts remain on after age seven. They are also often what is being described when, as a child, we see our guardian angel. Two is relationships. This guide supports us in all levels of connection. They work to position us so we're in the right place, at the right time, to meet someone we have a contract with. They also help us write contracts on the fly when an unexpected opportunity arises. They amplify and refine the energetic signal we put out when we're attempting to connect with a certain type of person or activity. This makes them part of the synchronicity when a job opportunity, a trip, or some other desire manifests perfectly. Three is logistics. 
helping us to manifest the physical things we need to survive and thrive. This guide works within the choices and parameters we set to make sure we have food, shelter, clothing, transportation, and so on. They monitor the systems we're working within and help us to navigate them, whether this be legal, medical, corporate, religious, family, or anything else structural we interact with. Four is our personal spiritual path. This guide makes sure we keep in alignment with our soul during the journey. This isn't necessarily about enlightenment, about remembering a higher self, or releasing to the next level of beingness. For some embodied beings, this is simply about being here and following through on the role, lesson, or challenge the soul has agreed to. For others, it is about remembering who they are and incorporating a more full understanding of what it means to be. Five is spiritual service. For those who come not for their own lessons or becoming, but to be in service to others, a guide will have been selected to support them in adding this aspect into their embodied life. As service comes in every form, from energy healer to NGO worker, non-profit executive to therapist, soup kitchen employee to architect, the guide provides support to the soul in finding the best means for doing their chosen service or services. This includes helping them select from a variety of options, finding the right avenues to pursue within that option, and then implementing. Being a spirit guide is in itself a type of service. As a soul matures, one of the career options available is to become a guide to those embodying. Not everyone has the aptitude to do this type of work, and like all skill-based activities, each being will have areas where they excel and others where they struggle. For example, there are certain required skills to be a spirit guide. The first thing a spirit guide has to master is communicating cross-dimensionally via non-intrusive methods. There's no use in communicating with us by appearing visually in front of our car while we're driving 70 miles per hour on the freeway, for instance. The message more than likely would get lost due to the method of delivery and our reaction to it. Instead, Souls taking on this work learn to influence things, gently nudging this and that so we both see and truly notice the road sign, logo, license plate, song on the radio, which is an answer or response to our questions. They might influence things so when we're flipping through the pages of a book, we open directly to the section we most need to read. They can help turn up the volume so we hear a conversation nearby which is in part a message for us. I call this type of communication charades, because it often uses symbols or wordplay to get the point across. Spirit guides also learn more complex means of communication, such as activating the sympathetic nerves to get our attention, or participate in the getting hotter, getting colder types of validation and verification. They develop the ability to manipulate electricity or various types of energy to influence objects, signals, and mechanisms. 
they work to express themselves directly to us through the limited and yet complex form of communication we call speech, to insert their messages into our dreams. And some can even reach far enough through the dimensions that we can feel them as a presence in the room. These are all very specialized skills, which few souls know and fewer are able to master. This is in part why it can be difficult for our loved ones to communicate with us once they've fully passed on. They simply don't have the ability to get the messages to us while we're here. Part of a spirit guide's responsibilities is to pass on these types of messages somewhat like a cell phone service or internet provider. Beyond communication, a spirit guide must also understand what it is to be embodied. There's a great difference between intellectual knowledge and applied understanding. This is in part why those wanting to become therapists go into therapy as a patient. Medical students are required to work in clinics and do residencies, and the military requires personnel to practice shooting on a firing range prior to going into combat. Knowing what it means to manifest physically, which provides a myriad of opportunities, while enforcing limitations and restrictions, is no substitute for having experienced it personally. This means each spirit guide has been embodied or been part of the embodiment process prior to becoming part of a spirit guide team. However, it shouldn't be assumed that their embodiment was as a human being or on Earth. This is only one of a great many planets where embodiment occurs. Guides may have acquired their embodiment experience here, or they might have done the work on other planets, which have different challenges and criteria. One of the most simple and yet most challenging skills of a spirit guide is holding space. It's their responsibility to not only remember the finalized plan made by the embodied soul for the life they're entering into, not only to support them in achieving it, but to allow them to choose otherwise. Part of the embodied experience is responding to the moment, making choices, making mistakes, and experiencing ourselves fully without interference. So guides stand ready to help, working within the parameters they've agreed to and keeping themselves out of the way, even when the soul is working contrary to their best interest. For this reason, most spirit guides do not have history or a pre-existing relationship with their person. While there are exceptions, the ability to hold space for someone becomes exponentially more difficult when the being is personally invested. This is the reason doctors are cautioned not to diagnose or treat their own loved ones, why parents can be blind to their children's troubles and failings, and there are rules for lawyers concerning conflicts of interest. Each of us is capable of increasing our level of access to our guides and facilitating the communication process. But before delving into the how, it's helpful to look at the who. Each of our spirit guides is a person. They are a unique individual with their own experiences, personality, and capabilities. In embodied life, the way in which we identify individuals is by name, 
and this is one of the first things we ask for or look into when attempting to connect with a spirit guide. What is their name? And it's something which trips people up on a regular basis because spirit guides don't have names. Names are a unique thing to embodied existence. When communication is through thought and feeling, when an intimate conversation means interpenetrating each other, who you are is your name. There is no other soul but you, so there's no confusion in who you are or need to represent yourself in symbolic forms. Names are a means for souls who communicate in linear time, via physical expression, to indicate which individual they're referring to or who they are separate from others. In embodied life, we're taught this means of expression and interacting with our world almost immediately as children, associating the being who is caring for us as mama or dada, for example. By the time we're seeking conscious connection with our guides, our desire to know who they are by knowing a name is therefore instinctive. So when a guide is asked what their name is, they have a range of choices. Some choose the simple expedient of taking on what we would think of as a nickname. They choose something easy for their person to pronounce, which promotes a feeling of camaraderie, while at the same time representing a bit of their own personality and their role. Hence, there are quite a number of guides with names like Chuck, Roger, Claire, and so on. Guides sometimes choose to use their title rather than a nickname, but the effect is the same. If they work in the Angel Corps under the auspices of the Archangel Michael, they might call themselves Michael. The same for any of the corps like those working under Gabriel, Raphael, or Uriel. Some guides choose to use a name they've acquired through their own embodied experience. Usually, this is a name they have pleasant associations with and which is pronounceable and understandable to their person. There's no use in using a name which the person can't pronounce or even understand clearly unless you want frustration or a sitcom type of humorous experience. When offered a preference for identification, not just the need for a name, guides choose to be represented visually rather than by a series of sounds. The way in which we process visual information is much more akin to the holistic communication methods souls use when in their natural state. With a visual, we take in not only data, but we react emotionally and are able to connect spiritually. We are moved on multiple levels simultaneously and so are able to understand more comprehensively, even if we're not conscious of doing so. This is why guides, when asked the question of who they are, often present a visual image. They may choose something which is non-gender specific or a gender which effectively represents the role they play for their person. They may associate themselves with a character from TV, movies or books, someone from our past, or a historical figure which helps us understand their personality somewhat like an icon allows us to access an app or program. 
This visual naming mode extends into the physical. Like icons or devotional candles, for medallions to be worn or figurines representing the deities, physical representations allow us to focus our thoughts and our communications with beings who are not physically embodied. They facilitate relationship by bringing the being into our lives in a tangible way. This also works well for our spirit guides. A physical object can be selected, which then represents a spirit guide just like a bowl of water can be used as a representation of the ocean, or a candle to symbolize the element fire. Asking a guide what they would like to be represented by can facilitate closer relationship and communication. What they prefer, how they help you acquire or create it, and how it is to be utilized provides deep levels of connection and meaning about who they are and who they are to you. Putting together a physical representation of your guides can be expanded on to create new ways of communicating and relating. Representations of each guide who works with you can be set up as an altar or in a place dedicated to meditation and reflection. This can be as simple as setting things on a windowsill or nestling them on your dresser. Once the items are situated, they serve as a focal point, much like a smartphone, which has your guide's contact information programmed in. Looking at the item, or spending time with it, focuses your thoughts and energy so communication becomes much clearer. It also puts you into a better space to receive response clearly and in a more timely fashion. Communication can also be fostered in the opposite direction, by us reaching across the veil to them. Through Akashic meditation, such as working with your Akashic room, you can invite spirit guides to communicate with you consciously, directly, and in real time. Most spirit guides will accept such an invitation and present themselves in human form. This often promotes not only more detailed and comprehensible conversations, but provides a means for us to get to know them as individuals. For those who want to explore this for a more connected and intimate relationship with their guides, I've provided a guided meditation on my website, Meeting Your Guide Meditation. I'll put a link to it in the podcast description. And that's all the time we have this week. Next week, we'll be looking closely at the practical ways to utilize past lives in order to live well in this one. If you're interested in knowing more, check out my website, akashicreading.com. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please take a minute to show it some love on iTunes. Your comments are also appreciated. Thanks. Bye.